Good evening, thank you for coming. There will be a separate Zoom link for the question period and it will begin 10 minutes after the lecture is over. Thanks. I would like to dedicate this talk to the memory of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whose determined and creative work towards justice and equality under the law permanently enhances human flourishing. My lecture is in three parts. The first explores the coming into being of Madame de Lafayette as an author. She actively participated in salon culture, which was based on conversation, reading aloud, and letter writing. Here she was exposed to romance novels, Cartesian philosophy, and reconstructed fairy tales. From discussions of Madame de Scudery's romance novel, Clélie, and Descartes' Passions of the Soul, for example, she gathered a nuanced vocabulary of the terrain of the passions or affective life. Part one also examines features of her style, rhetorically balanced sentence structure, rep rep uh, repetitious, deliberately limited word choice, and an omnipresent third person narrator who governs access to the thoughts of the characters. We want always to distinguish the author from the narrator, by the way, who to my mind is more like a character. I bring up these influences and style notes, not as 17th century fun facts, but because we can see the genesis of a novelist and her work in this rarefied social context. Although actual conversation in the novel is limited, I argue that both author and text developed through conversation rather than through solitary labor. Given the press of time, I will not read part one, but the written version will be in the library. Part two takes up Simone de Beauvoir's statement, one is not born, but becomes woman, to see how the young Mademoiselle de Chartres enacts femininity. Beauvoir examines the contribution of social givens like education to making us who we are. I would like to distinguish becoming woman from, uh, by taking up the norms given by one's milieu from becoming a woman whose life does not preclude a well-developed subjectivity and sense of agency within her context. Part three examines the protagonist decision at the end of the book. I realize that many of you have not yet read this novel, which resides in junior language classes. Here's the basic plot. A young girl seeks and finds a suitable boy. She marries, then she falls in love with someone else. Both her mother and her husband die abruptly, leaving her on her own to decide what to do with the mutual attraction for suitor number two. Unlike a marriage plot novel that culminates in a wedding, La Princesse de Cleve is interesting in its suggestion that women don't have just one major decision in life, Mr. Collins or Mr. Darcy, but that life is composed of a series of decisions about how to be related to those around us. We are constrained in our decisions by our situation as women, as people living in a particular place and time. 
Yet that there are particular situations that bear on our ways of making a life is universal. All of us come to be within a richly endowed milieu and contribute to it. La Princesse de Cleve is the first French novel of true psychological realism. The focus is on the interior life of the characters and their motivations, rather than considering these aspects as a commentary on action. For Descartes, a passion is something suffered or endured in the soul and comes from without. Descartes argues that the goal is to develop self-control so that external causes don't overly affect us. If we train and channel our responses, Descartes thinks that the passions are generally beneficial. Lafayette takes up this interest in characterizing the passions in their expression and, I claim, shows how someone comes to self-consciousness in part through conversation and passionate relationships with others. While they do not hew to philosophical categories precisely, her characters exhibit passions and self-control in nuanced ways. At the same time, this is a hybrid historical novel where our fictional heroine mingles with real-life royals in an idealized milieu. The Valois court, court in 1558, Common Era, is described as if the narrator were a contemporary who witnessed the many historical figures interacting with one another. The writer, Madame de Lafayette, lived and wrote under the reign of Louis XIV, whose brilliance was enhanced by a court light, life of the highest, perhaps decadent, aesthetic order. With a resonating magnificence between the two courts, Lafayette could draw on a verisimilitude based on historical personages and a felt authenticity of psychological life. The once upon a time sensibility is evoked in her novel, not only by the court setting, but by the consistent narration in the past tense. That every historical person mentioned is dead is a fact we brush by, though the meaning of death shadows the talk of love. We will look at some of the passages that focus on how the protagonist feels about what is happening to her, what is at stake, and whether or how she can have a sense of agency within a social situation that governs and surveils all action. Without further ado, part two, in which Mademoiselle de Chartres becomes la princesse de Cleve. The novel begins like this. Never has France seen such a display of courtly magnificence and manners, the galanterie, as in the past years of the reign of Henri II. The king was chivalrous, gallant, nobly built, and amorously inclined. Although his passion for Diane de Poitiers, the Duchesse de Valentinois, had begun more than 20 years earlier, it was nonetheless passionate, and he advertised it no less openly. La galanterie is a highly codified structure of communication, and the meaning of the word galantrie runs the gamut from good manners to discreet seduction. One who acts in a galant way is elegant, 
courteous and smoothly handles the rules of civility. La Rochefoucauld's honnête homme fits this description, though he may not participate in amorous entanglements. The court of Henri II gives a first impression of fairy tale brilliance, but soon there are realistic descriptions of the consequences, for example, of gossip, misplaced letters, or death by jousting. The terrain of love and politics is explored through subtle distinctions in etiquette. At court, appearances are primary, and often one feigned what one did not feel. The code of behavior added the necessity of hiding passions to the intensity of undergoing them, not only for one's reputation and prospects, but for one's very life. Thus, reading signs accurately became important. Madame de Chartres, knowledgeable about court life but withdrawn from it as a young widow, devoted her life solely to the education of her lovely daughter. Mademoiselle de Chartres perhaps may live her mother's unlived life, representing her with a spectacular debut at court. Our narrator describes the education thus. <clears throat> Madame de Chartres sought not only to cultivate her wit and beauty, but also make her love virtue and be virtuous. Most mothers imagine that one need only avoid speaking about amorous entanglements, galanterie, in front of young girls in order to preserve them at a distance from them. Madame de Chartres believed the opposite. She often gave her daughter descriptions of love. She impressed on her how attractive it can be in order to convince her more easily what she said about its dangers. She spoke to her of men's insincerity, of their deceptions and infidelity, of the disastrous effect of love affairs on domestic life. And she painted for her, on the other hand, the tranquility that a woman of good reputation une honnête femme, enjoys. She told her of how much brilliance and distinction d'éclat et d'élévation virtue bestows on a woman who is beautiful and well-born. But she also taught her how difficult it is to preserve virtue except by extreme mistrust of oneself and by holding fast to the only thing that can ensure a woman's happiness to love one's husband and be loved by him. The list-like construction of this paragraph puts the items on the same logical level, inviting comparison. The attractiveness of passionate love, l'amour, is counterbalanced by its dangers. A tranquil marriage is upset by galanterie. An illustrious pedigree and beauty are threatened by a bad reputation. Madame de Chartres' remedy for these contrasts was the same, mistrust men and um, apply extreme mistrust to oneself. There's an exception to the rule. One must cultivate affection, l'amitié, for a husband to whom one must trust one's future well-being. Mademoiselle de Chartres listened to her mother as she warned her against extramarital liaisons, yet taught to expect them of her spouse. From the novel's first paragraph, the narrator prepared us for the profusion of amorous entanglements in the court society. 
Beneath the elegance and distinction of beguiling speech, gallantry carried a darker tone of treachery or insincerity. Further, Madame de Chartres equated feminine virtue with chastity. While expected to show self-discipline and restraint, Mademoiselle de Chartres cannot be said to be temperate. She was not to find a mean between extremes, but was to perform absolute chastity in order to maintain her virginal value. Chastity was redefined upon marriage. No longer abstaining from sex, one must have loyalty to and sleep only with one's husband. The young girl was not to be truth-telling, but received an education that prized silence, euphemistic language, and outright lying. This interfered with the cultivation of friendship, and her relations with ladies of the court were along political lines. Most importantly, Mademoiselle de Chartres was taught to have extreme mistrust of her own capacities. How could these teaching, teachings enable a young woman to discriminate between those who had good or ill intentions? How can friendships or romantic partners develop under such conditions? Madame de Chartres' own brother, the Vidame de Chartres, was surprised by his niece's loveliness and assessed her face, her figure, as full of grace and charm. This sounds very promising, since the goal was to find a suitable husband of high station, substantial wealth, and considerate disposition. The ideal of a charming honnête homme is out of sync with une honnête femme. Her good reputation depended just as much as his on others' opinions, yet her wit would be employed as alertness to danger in a social context, while his would be employed as cleverness. She had to appear as chaste, modest, and passively intelligent, dressed in clothes carefully chosen to enhance her desirability and stress her class status, Mademoiselle de Chartres was presented as a rare and valuable object. At age 15, she had become woman, a perfect doll. Mademoiselle de Chartres fit the reigning ideals of feminine beauty in France, yet her attractiveness was due in part to novelty. She was fresh and young as well as lovely. The reigned Dauphine, the crown princess, immediately took her up to add prestige to her circle of court ladies. The heroine exhibited refinement in speech, in bodily gesture, and in the language of clothes. Despite her privilege, she had very little room to move. The girl had to come immediately when the rain dauphine called and to obey her mother as she negotiated the appropriate marriage match. The Prince de Cleves fell in love at first sight, yet was discouraged that the self-composed Mademoiselle de Chartres was, quote, neither impatient nor restless nor troubled. He argued, my passion affects you no more than would an attachment based only on the advantage of your rank and fortune. Rank and fortune are the common criteria for a good match, not love but the prince longed for a turning of her heart. 
This conversation about the disparity in their sentiments ended somberly as the narrator relates. Quote, Mademoiselle de Chartres did not know what to reply, these distinctions being beyond her comprehension. Monsieur de Cleves saw all too well how far she was from having the kind of feelings that would satisfy him, since it seemed to him that she did not even understand what they were. Note here that the prince and the narrative voice are in partial agreement. We readers don't know if Mademoiselle de Chartres had any feelings beyond gratitude for his kindness and courtesy. It's perhaps unfair of us or the prince to expect more from her given her education. Since she came into visibility as a superlatively beautiful object available for marriage, Mademoiselle de Chartres gave no sign of having an interior life as a subject. After a risk-filled moment, Mademoiselle de Chartres' value was affirmed and she was redefined as La Princesse de Cleve. As a young married woman, the princess was still in a rather exposed position with a bouquet of persistent suitors. Our otherwise omniscient narrator remains outside her head and we know more about the Chevalier de Guise and other luckless suitors than about the princess's feelings. She remained a prize for the bachelors at court to contest over. The Prince de Cleves staked his claim on the fact that he saw her first. The Maréchal de Saint-André and finally the Duc de Nemours also entered competition for the princess's favors since her wedding only raised the stakes for a dalliance that would be a marker of their own excellence. In this milieu, men gained glory, la gloire, in a successful conquest, parallel to the fame stemming from skillful victory on the battlefield. Our princess was flattered that Nemour, the most amable, the most worthy, the most lovable man in the world, gave up on a possible marriage to Queen Elizabeth of England in order to court her. This gave weight to his wooing and heightened her value as a prize. Seeing the cluster of men around her daughter, Madame de Chartres bolstered her daughter's virtuous reputation and finally, quote, succeeded in making her appear unassailable. In the case of the Chevalier de Guise, his defeat in love prompted him to go to war and die young. For him, martial glory was a substitute for success in love rather than the other way around. The Duc de Nemours remained determined to conquer on the field of Amour, and the central contest will shift from one between men to one between Nemours and the princess. The novel began in wonder or l'admiration. In the Passions of the Soul, Descartes defines wonder, l'admiration, as a sudden surprise in the soul that stems from finding an object extraordinary. One keeps the attention directly upon the object in seeking knowledge of this unusual thing. Astonishment, l'étonnement, is, is distinguished by excess, it freezes the beholder with one image of the astounding item and hence abandons the project of coming to know it. An excess of wonder, astonishment, 
as Descartes would say, can never be anything but bad. Here is a somewhat abbreviated description of the scene at the ball when the princess first met the Duc de Nemours. Notice the use of the words wonder, surprise, astonishment. When she arrived, her beauty and the brilliance of her costume, costume caused great wonder. The ball began, and as she was dancing with Monsieur de Guise, there was a loud noise over by the door of the ballroom, as of people giving away to someone coming in. Madame de Cleve finished dancing. She turned and saw a man who she felt at once could be no other than Monsieur de Nemours, stepping over a chair to make his way to where the dancing was. He had such presence that it was difficult not to be surprised on seeing him when one had never seen him before. But it was also difficult to see Madame de Cleve for the first time without being astonished. Monsieur de Nemours was indeed so surprised by her beauty that when he was close to her and she curtsied, he could not help betraying his wonder, his admiration. As they began to dance, there arose in the hall a murmur of approval. The Prince de Cleve had been astonished, causing her to blush on their first meeting, but this seems different. Here there is a collective sound of appreciation of the lustrous appearance of each of them as perfect of their kind. The partygoers stood back, stupefied by a unique aesthetic match. Nemour was not astonished. His surprise at this extraordinary woman manifested as wonder. Rather than being a stunned witness, he overcame symbolic obstacles, a crowd, a chair, to reach her side as she first heard and then beheld him. We have seen this enacted so many times that it has become a cliché. Prince Charming appears, sees the beloved across a crowded room, and flies to her side. Like Cinderella, the Princess de Cleve transformed her suitor just by the way she shone so brilliantly. Everyone else dropped away, and the pair reveled in the graceful appearance of the other. Etiquette was disregarded, and even time seemed to stop. The princess's enthusiastic description of the ball made her mother aware of her attraction to Nemours. She did not realize it herself. The Duc de Nemours was of high standing as befit nature's masterpiece. However, he was exactly the kind of man Madame de Chartres warned her daughter against. He was known for gallantry and his passion would interfere with the domestic affection, l'amitié, Madame de Chartres held out as the sturdy platform for feminine gloire. The princess's reputation for being unassailable was the biggest challenge the Duke could desire. He, her gloire directly challenged his. The narrator continues. It is impossible to express the pain, douleur, she felt on discovering through what her mother had just told her, her own interest in Monsieur de Nemours. She saw then that the feelings she had for him were those that Monsieur de Cleve had so often asked of her. 
She realized how shameful it was to have such feelings for a man other than a husband who deserved them. She felt wounded and embarrassed by the fear that Monsieur de Nemours might want to use her as a decoy, as a pretext, in his pursuit of the Reine Dauphine. Embarrassment is repeated ad nauseum in the description of her first days at court. It occurs in both the noun form lambaras, an obstruction, which can refer to a barrier or a multitude of things barring the way, or figuratively refer to an obstacle that blocks movement by confusion or inquietude. As a verb, to be embarrassed is often marked by one of the few involuntary facial gestures, blushing. Blushing then becomes a significant sign of otherwise hidden passions. Nimour uh, demonstrated his skill in overcoming obstacles at the ball. This is paired with the princess's personal fear that she might be used as an obstacle to confuse others and hide his gallantry towards the crown princess. This is a pivotal moment in the novel. She learned through conversation from her, with her mother what she did not know about herself. The discovery caused pain splaying out in several directions. She suddenly realized that she had feelings of love, of shame, and of fear. She was able to distinguish these and distribute them according to their objects. Relative to her husband, she felt shame. Relative to the Duke de Nemours, she was awakened to the passion of l'amour. Relative to herself, she was embarrassed by feeling fear and experienced it as a wounding. While full of pride at her exemplary performance as a prestige object, she was hurt that she might be used as a shield when she would like to be the unique object of desire. Each of these strong sentiments helped Madame de Cleve understand the contours of an inner life. To swing from disturbance to pleasure to pain at the realization of her attachment was a dizzying new experience. Simone de Beauvoir describes a girl's sexual initiation as often felt as shameful or as a painful wounding. This princess's wedding night was not described. Whether she has had intercourse with her husband or not, her sense of wounding and shame is centered on dancing with Namor at their first meeting. Beauvoir argues that for some young girls, early marriage has a theoretical cast and is, quote, a pseudo-experience without danger and without much flavor. The sexual act is not accompanied by either anguish or shame because arousal remains superficial and pleasure has not permeated the flesh. The princess, however, experienced symptoms of irreversible change into womanhood with regard to Namur rather than her husband. The attentive Duke de Namur, quote, could see in all her actions that kind of disquiet, trouble, and embarrassment which love causes in the innocence of early youth. We know that she did not love her husband and had been at court for a mere season, yet she still showed, to Nemours' eyes at least, the embarrassment of innocence. 
Do embarrassment and sharp pain make sense as responses to the discovery that one is in love? Her mother's standard of unfeelingness is perhaps an illegitimate standard, yet she was chagrined for not meeting it. Two pages later, her mother was unexpectedly on her deathbed. She bluntly said that she would not rest in peace if her daughter fell like other women. I get the sense that the falling into love, into sin, into a tarnished reputation was the lesser evil to a demotion to the class of ordinary women. Instead of being one of a kind, an exceptional being with either no passions or a complete mastery over those she did have, her daughter might just be another human being with needs and desires. The isolated princess had been proud of being exceptional, yet she felt contradictory pressures like those of the queen of France herself to keep silent about her feelings and yet to speak. The queen attempted to have one confidant, the, the Vidame de Chartres, bound to her exclusively. At 16, Madame de Cleve had no one to consult. When the Duc de Nemours and our princess shared an enchanted afternoon trying to forge a letter to fool the queen into believing that the princess's uncle, the Vidame de Chartres, was not having a secret affair, the princess was described as being in a light-hearted mood. The two of them took their time to write, closeted in a small room. For the first and only time in the novel, they were playful and delighted in each other's company. By the next day, she was full of remorse for deceiving her husband and ashamed at appearing so unworthy in front of Namor. Their physical closeness was bound together in her mind with the possibility of being deceived herself, open to the sharp pangs of jealousy. Notice how the third person narrator's voice steps aside to reveal her inner turmoil in a first person point of view. She was astonished to never have thought how likely it was that a man like Monsieur de Nemours was capable of a sincere, lasting attachment. She felt it was almost impossible to find happiness in his love. But even if I could, she said to herself, do I really want to respond to it? Am I ready to embark on a love affair, une galanterie? To be faithful to Monsieur de Cleve? To be unfaithful to myself? Do I wish to expose myself to the cruel remorse and mortal sufferings that love gives rise to? I am conquered and overcome by an inclination that carries me with it in spite of myself. At first, astonished, she is confused and full of questions. She is suddenly struck with a different perspective, both about the Duke and about herself. As a married person, any turning towards him would have the character of gallantrie, and while exciting, preclude contentment. Because of its transitory nature, romantic passion would necessarily lead to remorse. And even more disturbing, she position, positioned herself as conquered, not by his advances, but by her own unpredicted feelings. She was not in control of herself, even if she appeared that way. Her questions are not easily answered. They are existential ones. How do I want to live my life? 
Can I be sincere within a committed relationship? What can I do to support that choice when I feel myself defeated by my own unbidden attractions? We hear the immediacy of the I very strongly here, given the habitual third-person voice. It's interesting that she arrived at the question of being faithful to herself through a consideration of her relations with Nemours and with the Prince de Cleves. Her ways of being with them bore on her personal integrity. The princess did not simply seek to avoid suffering per se. Grief and pain are unavoidable aspects of human life, which as an orphan she already knew. The suffering wrought by jealousy is the particular vulnerability that goes hand in hand with death-dealing remorse. Jealousy affects all the main characters in this novel. In fact, one might claim it as the motivator of action. Descartes describes jealousy as a species of anxiety at work not on the basis of legitimate reasons we might lose someone dear, but rather from the high esteem in which we hold that good. Jealousy takes different forms since the life situation of a woman is different from that of a man. A man, Descartes tells us, who is jealous of his wife is blameworthy because, quote, what he loves is not strictly her. It is only the good he imagines to consist in his having sole possession of her. A virtuous woman, on the other hand, is not blameworthy for guarding her honor, for, i.e., being jealous of it, taking care not only to behave well, but also to avoid even the slightest cause for scandal, in Descartes' words. One can see that Madame de Cleve was mortified that she might show some inclination for Nemour if he was interested in another person. At risk is her reputation for chastity. To tarnish that, even if only in the Duke de Nemours himself, is shameful. She construes this as being unfaithful to herself because her reputation, la gloire, bears on her personal integrity. The princess had been proud of her accomplishment as a precious and unassailable fortress and was shocked by the swiftness with which those walls were tumbling down. It revealed that she did not possess what she thought she possessed, self-esteem rooted in self-control. Her self-control operated on two levels, over her interior passions and over her external appearance in the world. As an observer, imagining Nemours' point of view, she assessed her reputation and she was found wanting. When the princess asked her husband for permission to go to their country house to regain her peace of mind, le repos, and be further away from temptation, he refused. The narrator remarks, Monsieur de Cleve, who by nature was inclined to treat his wife with kindness, douceur, and indulgence, showed neither on this occasion and told her flatly that he did not wish her to change her conduct, end quote. It is clear that the princess did not have control over her own life, despite her elevated class. She may have been under an illusion, given his indulgence, but when it mattered most, her husband exerted his power. 
She had to stand where he told her to stand and sit where he told her to sit. This is a dark and foreboding moment. But back to the love letter. That letter had fallen from a pocket, and the court went into a tizzy, trying to figure out who was careless, the Vidame de Chartres or the Duc de Nemours. We onlookers can read the letter in full as a kind of map of the contours of a love affair. The letter was passed from hand to hand, from the Reine Dauphine to the Princess de Cleve to Nemours to the Vidame, while a poor forgery was handed to the Queen. By its journey, the system of affiliation and gossip was brought to light. When the princess read the love letter, which she supposed had been written to the Duke de Nemours, she felt a range of sentiments that converged on despair. We, the readers, already knew that it belonged to the Vidame. We recognize that her reactions are a mistake but the narrator allows her to toss and turn in anguish all night while we follow 10 pages of the Vidam's elaborate confession to Nemour. Fully up to speed, we anticipate and are rewarded by the princess's subsequent relief and even collusion with Nemour in lying about the whereabouts of the letter. Throughout the book, she noticed her own feelings in the context of hearing other people talk about the Duke de Nemours. Gossip is a site of self-knowledge. The letter made her feelings more than evident to herself. The princess and Nemours' understanding of each other was minimal. Oddly, each had to hide their feelings from view while trying to discern how the other one felt. Nemours took to very roundabout expressions. He didn't show up at events she didn't go to as an indication that he'd be too sad if she were not there. Through public gossip, she came to know of his absence and could read the private message. This kind of double negative gesture can be interpreted here as an intensification of feeling rather than a canceling out. As another example, Nemours wore yellow ribbons on his attire for the jousting tournament. The colors indicate one's lady love. The king, for instance, wore the black and white favored by the Madame de Valentinois, his mistress. And in a self-flattering way, Madame de Cleve had once remarked that it was too bad that she was blonde, since that meant she couldn't wear yellow. Thus, the wearing of yellow ribbons by Nemours spoke volumes. It was in her honor because it was not her color. This then was a private sign for everyone else speculated about who his love interest might be while the princess got the point. In a situation of intense surveillance, secret meanings deepened their intimacy without direct con contact. While forging the letter or socializing in public, they felt out each other's feelings. That is not the same thing as knowing the other person, especially since hiding feelings was their way of showing them. At the same time, the Princess de Cleve wished to be known by her husband, to be frank and open with him in a confession of her wayward sentiments. This is unusual. 
Indeed, characters within the novel and critics without have doubted that anyone would confess feelings for another person to their own spouse. Yet by confessing infidelity of thought and affect, she attempted to demonstrate greater sincerity and faithfulness to her husband than hiding her feelings would do. As husband and as unrequited lover, this news was hard for him to hear. The prince was unhappy on both accounts, and his reckless attempts to know the name of his rival broke his own heart. Unlike the couple, we readers know that Nemour had overheard their conversation with her confession. The Duke de Nemours could not help himself. Through his error of judgment, the anonymous story of confession entered the gossip circuit. This is distressing in itself. Are we always on display? Is life being lived within a field of gossip and badly founded inferences? I said before that the princess came to find out what she really felt by listening to others talk about Monsieur de Nemours. Here the married couple found out the contours of their relationship through the same means. They had had a moment of closeness and respect after her confession, but that was shaken by jealousy. The novel offers a very pessimistic view of passionate love. L'amour yields mistrust, anxiety, and torment. The princess took note not only of her mother's cautions, but of her husband's and suitor's actions. They were both drawn to do things an honnête homme would not do. The prince's gentility gave way to cruelty as he forced her to stay in court with an austere grip on her behavior. The princess thought that one thing she could offer her husband was to suppress her passions and live her life giving absolutely no sign of them. She construed this as evidence of her strength and even felt a certain sweetness in this token of commitment to the Prince de Cleve. Meanwhile, the invader of their privacy, the Duke de Nemours, quote, felt a marked pleasure at having reduced her to this extremity. It flattered his gloire that he had inspired love in a woman so different from all others of her sex, unquote. For all three characters, her confession had both personal and social consequences. The two men experienced her inclination as a win or a loss of a contest. She was in a struggle against herself and her deep anxiety prompted self-examination. Part three, which is shorter, in which le repos, peace of mind, is sought. When we think back to Mademoiselle de Chartres' astonishing debut, her naive blushes and innocent pleasure, pleasure in dancing at a ball were charmingly simple. Yet even then, the objectified girl sought something more than praise for her beauty and comportment. Even then, the shock of her mother's death meant she had to figure out how to become a woman on her own. After her husband's passing, she had a second beginning that did not announce itself as such. When the king, Henri II, died, the alliances in court were irrevocably overturned. The queen immediately banished the mistress, Madame de Valentinois, and replaced key figures with her own allies. 
the social consequences were so dramatic that Madame de Klebe's retreat was not noticed. This gave her private time to redefine herself. Le repos can be translated as peace of mind, equanimity, or tranquility. It denotes freedom from anxiety, a calm equilibrium. To have well-being in repose means to be whole, being able to accept one's own life, including one's past, without striving for something else or wanting to be someone else. Distinct from innocence, this is the chosen serenity of a person who has suffered. Given a social structure that is suffocating, one who embraces equanimity lives a more modest life, disassociated from public affairs and the anxiety that they bring. As we have seen, Madame de Chartres' notion of happiness in having affection uh, for a husband within a context of distrust, mistrust of self and others was paradoxical and impossible to enact. The Princesse de Cleve sought to achieve something more than her mother wanted for her, a tranquility of mind due to bodily integrity and a personal autonomy of the will. Becoming a subject was not a pleasant process for the Princesse de Cleve. In the wake of her husband's death, this young woman's grief, guilt, and anguish were compounded by her own near-death illness. She had had direct experience of the transitory nature of all life, including the distortions of passionate love by jealousy. The princess turned neither to pleasure nor happiness in the arms of the still eligible bachelor, Duke de Nemours, despite his sincerity and affection. She was free now to choose him and overcame all external barriers. Yet her focus was not on the absence of emotional disturbance, but rather in the activity of a self-conscious willing and willful self. I would like to read part of the last exchange between the Duc de Nemours and the young widow, Princess de Cleve, a rare private conversation in the first person. Quote, I'm well aware that there is nothing more difficult than what I propose to do, replied Madame de Cleve. What I believe I owe to the memory of Monsieur de Cleve would be a feeble resource were it not sustained by my desire for tranquility, le repos, tranquility of mind. Likewise, the reasons that speak in favor of tranquility need to be supported by those that duty prescribes. Little as I trust myself, however, I believe that I shall never be able to overcome my inclination to you. It will make me unhappy, and I intend to remove myself from your sight. Monsieur de Nemours threw himself at her feet and surrendered himself utterly to the feelings that shook his soul. In his words and tears, she saw revealed the most ardent and tender passion that has ever touched a human heart. Madame de Cleve's own heart was not insensible. She gazed at Nemours, her eyes brimming with tears, and exclaimed, Why has fate, destiny, put such an insuperable obstacle between us? There is no obstacle, Madame, protested Monsieur de Nemours. You alone stand in the way of my happiness. 
you alone made for yourself a law that virtue and reason could never impose. It is true, she replied, that I am sacrificing a great deal to a duty that exists only in my imagination. The princess made a chiasmatic argument. Duty is sustained by a desire for tranquility. Likewise, tranquility of mind is supported by the duty to honor the memory of her husband. The two together made a tighter shield against her passion and self-mistrust. She realized it would be nearly impossible to resist an inclination towards the most amable man in the world. Notice that the terms and goals of gallantry are not in play. By the end of the novel, she admitted mutual affection and his intention towards a committed relationship. She rightly assessed that the origin of his inclination towards her and noted that his constancy was due to the challenge of the obstacles between them. Now, however, she erected imaginary obstacles not to support his desire, but to turn away from it. The narrator calmly tells us that, as expected, his attraction faded from lack of nourishment over time. After the poignant immediacy of their exchange, the reader feels the terse account of the princess's permanent withdrawal as abrupt. Each of us has had wide access to events and their meanings. We know to whom letters belong. We know when someone is mistaken about another's behavior. We watched as Nemour spied on private conversations, and we witnessed the princess's sleepless jealousy in her bedroom. And now, after being in the room with the pair, so to speak, each of us faces the shock of the shut door. The Princess de Cleve refused to say more, refused even to accept Nemours' letters or our desire for access to her thoughts. The narrator sums up the rest of her short life in a couple of brief paragraphs. Her successful struggle to overcome her inclination for Nemours merits one sentence and her resultant practice of austerities garners two more. The narrator is not being coy. One senses that even she is not permitted to disturb or even witness the princess's victory over passion. The princess de Cleve learned something from her experience beyond the conventional armature of her earlier education in femininity. By being willing to disappear, from the male-centered public arena, she in effect re-willed her realization as a self-directed woman. The sensations of peace and tranquility countered and finally overcame her undesired inclination for the Duke de Nemours. The princess achieved gloire, even within the frame of traditional feminine virtues, and she exhibited the kind of absolute chastity her mother hoped for her Yet she did not exercise chastity as a token of value in a game between men, but as a composed person with self-respect. It may be paradoxical to attribute gloire to someone who withdraws from the view of the narrator, the reader, and through her early death, the world. Rather than being highly visible, she redefined her situation. Like her author, this princess came to herself through a social world of alliances, conversation, and letter writing. 
holding open the memory of her husband as an expedient means to an independent life, she did not leave the court to become a hermit or a solitary contemplator of the Logos. The Princess de Cleve retreated to a convent of nuns for part of the year and was at home in the country for the rest, doing good works in her community throughout. She was interactive and intentional about the kind of life she wanted to live. Above all, she maintained a serenity based on personal integrity of body and mind. The Princess de Cleve did the nearly impossible. Within a patriarchal social context, she managed to overcome being a pretty young thing to be a thinking, embodied being. At this novel's end, as an orphan, the princess lacked responsibilities towards parents. As a widow, she lacked the duty to be where her husband wanted her to be, doing what her husband desired her to do. In the countryside, she was not at court, attending the rain dauphine under heavy surveillance. And as she was not a mother, nor a celibate and obedient nun, this woman renounced traditional feminine roles. Memorializing her husband, the widow, Madame de Cleve, made a space that protected her from new alliances and permitted her an autonomous life. Because individuation takes place within a context and one person cannot effectively change the structure, her extraordinary strategy was holding open private space. Truly wonderful, she was self-directed in her interior life and its expression of inimitable human virtue. Simone de Beauvoir's statement, one is not born but becomes woman, is here instantiated. While through her education, the princess successfully learned feminine comportment and values, she transcended these by using them as means to becoming a singular subjectivity, a woman. In this novel, we see how much public life is intertwined with private life. It is difficult to have the tranquility of private existence without a stable social world outside one's doors. Protecting ourselves from participation in our own over-surveillance and protecting others from suffering may be the prerequisites to tranquil self-regard. Our assumptions about rational decision-making need to be supplemented by the passions that enter into social being. Articulating for ourselves the bases for community and cultivating an interior life remain urgent tasks. At its quiet ending, La Princesse de Cleve leaves us with more questions. If we cannot imitate directly the princess's virtue, how ought we to live? How can we maintain personal integrity and genuine relationships of friendship and love within our social worlds? How can each of us negotiating, negotiate the compelling context of our existence to claim our own voice?